Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, September 30th, 2022, the 618th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And you will be supporting me and the work I do and this show as it expands. If you can't or you don't want to, all good. You can listen for free a couple days later on a variety of platforms. Just please share the show with your friends. So a hat tip to Natalie in the Telegram chat for dropping this article in the chat last night. I want to start off with a little flashback, a little reset so that we can remember where we were before the pandemic period began. This is from the New York Times on February 11th, 2020, by a man named David Destino, who is a social psychologist. The headline is How Fear Distorts Our Thinking About the Coronavirus. And the subheadline is, The solution isn't to try to think more carefully, It's to trust the experts. 
When it comes to making decisions that involve risks, we humans can be irrational in quite systematic ways. A fact that the psychologists Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman famously demonstrated with the help of a hypothetical situation, eerily apropos of today's coronavirus epidemic that has come to be known as the Asian disease problem. Professors Tversky and Kahneman asked people to imagine that the United States was preparing for an outbreak of an unusual Asian disease that was expected to kill 600 citizens. To combat the disease, people would choose between two options, a treatment that would ensure 200 people would be saved or one that had a 33% chance of saving all 600, but a 67% chance of saving none. Here, a clear favorite emerged. 72% chose the former. But when professors Tversky and Kahneman framed the question differently, such that the first option would ensure that only 400 people would die, and the second option offered a 33% chance that nobody would perish and a 67% chance that all 600 would die, people's preferences reversed. 78% now favored the second option. This is irrational because the two questions don't differ mathematically. In both cases, choosing the first option means accepting the certainty that 200 people live, and choosing the second means embracing a one-third chance that all could be saved with an accompanying two-thirds chance that all will die. Yet in our minds, professors Tversky and Kahneman explained, losses loom larger than gains, and so when the options are framed in terms of deaths rather than cures, we'll accept more risks to try to avoid deaths. Our decision-making is bad enough when the disease is hypothetical, but when the disease is real, when we see actual death tolls climbing daily, as we do with the coronavirus, another factor besides our sensitivity to losses comes into play, fear. And remember, this is February 2020. This is before lockdowns, before the national emergency, before anyone was paying attention for real. People were just going about their lives. Clubs were open, restaurants were open, sporting events, concerts, churches, places where people gathered were totally open. No one was wearing masks. No one was scared to be close to other people. But the narrative is already being seeded. We are seeing death tolls climbing daily, he said, in February. And of course, all of this assumes that the disease is real and that they can predict the level of death that we should expect if we don't do anything. And you'll remember that was the approach. They did epidemiological, mathematical models to tell us that so many people really would die from the very real pandemic. The brain states we call emotions exist for one reason, to help us decide what to do next. They reflect our mind's predictions for what's likely to happen in the world and therefore serve as an efficient way to prepare us for it. But when the emotions we feel aren't correctly calibrated for the threat or when we're making judgments in domains where we have little knowledge or relevant information, our feelings become more likely to lead us astray. Let me give you an example. In several experiments, my colleagues and I led people to feel sad or angry by having them read a magazine article that described either the impact of a natural disaster on a small town or the details of vehement anti-American protests abroad. Next, we asked them to estimate the frequencies of events that, if they occurred, would typically make people feel sad. 
For example, the number of people who will have to euthanize a beloved pet this year or angry. For example, the number of people who will be intentionally sold a lemon by a dishonest car dealer this year. Estimates for which people wouldn't already hold a knowledgeable answer. Time and again, we found that when the emotion people felt matched the emotional overtones of a future event, their predictions for that event's frequency increased. For instance, people who felt angry expected many more people to get swindled by a car dealer than did those who felt sad, even though the anger they felt had nothing to do with cars. Likewise, those who felt sad expected more people to have to euthanize their pets. Fear works in a similar way. Using a nationally representative sample in the months following September 11th, 2001, the decision scientist Jennifer Lerner showed that feeling fear led people to believe that certain anxiety-provoking possibilities, for example, a terrorist strike, were more likely to occur. Such findings show that our emotions can bias our decisions in ways that don't accurately reflect the dangers around us. As of Monday, only 12 people in the United States have been confirmed to have the coronavirus and all have had or are undergoing medical monitoring. Yet fear of contracting the virus is rampant. Through the United States, there's been a rush on face masks, most of which won't help against the virus. A hesitance to go into crowded places and even a growing suspicion that any Asian might be host for the virus. And this is the most New York Times narrative you could possibly imagine. They're concerned about anti-Asian hate in February of 2020. And they're admitting that masks don't work just a few months before they came to the conclusion that masks do work and have always worked. And if you don't wear one, you're killing someone's grandmother. Don't get me wrong. Certain quarantine or monitoring policies can make great sense when the threat is real and the policies are based on accurate data. But the facts on the ground, as opposed to the fear in the air, don't warrant such actions. For most of us, the seasonal flu, which has killed as many as 25,000 people in the United States in just a few months, presents a much greater threat than does the coronavirus. You might think that the best way to solve the problem is to get people to be more deliberative to have them think more carefully about the issues involved. Unfortunately, when it comes to this type of emotion-induced bias, that strategy can make matters worse. When people spend more time considering an issue, but don't have the relevant facts at hand to make an informed decision, there are more opportunities for their feelings to fill in the blanks. To demonstrate this, my colleagues and I conducted another series of experiments in which we presented sad, angry, or emotionally neutral people with a government proposal to raise taxes. In one version of the proposal, we said the increased revenue would be used to reduce depressing problems, like poor conditions in nursing homes. In the other, we focused on angering problems, like increasing crime because of a shortage of police officers. As we expected, when the emotions people felt matched the emotion of the rationales for the tax increase, their attitudes to the proposal became more positive, but the effort they put into considering the proposal didn't turn out to reduce this bias. It made it stronger. There's a simple explanation for this. The more time people spent thinking about the arguments for the tax increase, rationales that match their feelings in emotional overtone, the more opportunity their emotions had to inflate the perceived pervasiveness of those problems. 
the mix of miscalibrated emotion and limited knowledge, the exact situation in which many people now find themselves with respect to the coronavirus can set in motion a worsening spiral of irrational behavior. As news about the virus's toll in China stokes our fears, it makes us not only more worried than we need to be about contracting it, but also more susceptible to embracing fake claims and potentially problematic, hostile, or fearful attitudes toward those around us. Claims and attitudes that in turn reinforce our fear and amp up the cycle. So how to fix the problem? Again, the solution isn't to try to think more carefully about the situation. Most people don't possess the medical knowledge to know how and when to best address viral epidemics, and as a result, their emotions hold undue sway. Rather, the solution is to trust data-informed expertise. But in today's world, I worry a firm trust in expertise is lacking, making us too much the victim of fear. So this is back before the major fear campaign coming from New York Times and other state propaganda media outlets really began. He was warning about the emotional response to the news we were hearing. People were calling it the China virus. So writers from the New York Times and social psychologists everywhere were very concerned that there was going to be anti-Asian racism. And they didn't want people to make irrational decisions based on their emotions. Because, of course, we were in the lead up to a very deadly pandemic, a global pandemic like the world has never seen. And the last thing we need to do is give in to our irrational fears or our anger. So let's think about what the national conversation was like at this point. It was early 2020. Donald Trump had been on the national stage for about four and a half years. He'd been president for a full three. And while the country was moving along very successfully, the narrative was that Donald Trump was at all times an existential threat to everything we loved and cared about, everything about American life that we treasured. Donald Trump was ready to end it all, all of our norms, all of our sacred institutions. He just had no respect at all. He was colluding with Russia, and then he stole an election. And then Robert Mueller had him dead to rights, but just couldn't close the deal on that Russian collusion. And Donald Trump was cozying up to dictators. And Donald Trump was keeping kids in cages. And all of a sudden, every celebrity had been sexually assaulted. And it was the fault of each and every man in existence. We were beset on all sides with conspiracy theorists and disinformation and racism and sexism and homophobia. And everybody was very, very angry and very, very sad and very, very scared because they had been talked into it nonstop for years and years and years. Now, at the beginning of 2020, we were just wrapping up the first fake impeachment, the Ukraine impeachment hoax had just finished days before this article came out. The holiday season had ended. We got the impeachment television show for a month or so. Everybody knew that Donald Trump was abusing his office as president to harm the campaign of a potential political opponent in Joe Biden. 
and he was a big fat traitor to America. The media had played this game every day since Donald Trump came down the escalator and truthfully for years before that. Every Democrat, every never Trump Republican was embracing the fear and the anger and the sadness, and they were spreading it around them to everyone who would listen. They were dominant on social media. The censorship regime was in place, but people weren't really paying attention yet. There was one singular message. Everyone who thinks, everyone who cares about society hates Donald Trump. They had been told again and again that the walls were closing in, except the walls never closed in all the way, and they couldn't understand why. They just knew that those walls needed to close in. So when the coronavirus pandemic narrative began, all of these people, the sorts of people who make up the New York Times audience, were ready to view everything through that sadness, that anger, that fear, that hatred of Donald Trump and the world as Donald Trump could make it. And the media narrative, the narrative from the Academy, the narrative from our public health officials, the narrative that was promoted on the big tech platforms while they silenced the counter narrative. All of that was built intentionally to play off of that fear, that anger, that sadness, that hatred. They had no idea what was going on, but they knew they had to trust the experts and the experts would never line up with Donald Trump because Donald Trump is so stupid and so dangerous and so ignorant. And soon it didn't matter what the facts of the coronavirus actually were. It only mattered whether or not any individual decision, any part of the narrative, any fact helped or hurt Donald Trump because it was an election year and the very deadly pandemic was here. And if we could frame the pandemic as Donald Trump's fault and we could frame it as very deadly and very poorly handled, well, Donald Trump wouldn't get reelected. And if Donald Trump didn't get reelected, then all the fear and the anger and the hatred and the sadness that would all go away because all of that was Donald Trump's fault. That's what we were told. That's what we believed. And the narrative built by these media outlets, built by the New York Times, was created to exploit exactly what this writer is warning against. And that narrative was targeted directly at these people, people who believed that they understood the problem of emotional thinking and that their education, their status in society, their place in society as they see it, their default to the idea that they are fully informed by their media, by the media sources they pay attention to, would mean that they would always be on the right side of every issue. They knew how to trust the experts. They knew how to escape the problem of emotional thinking. And they were fully prepared to follow this writer's advice. Don't think at all. Trust the experts. This situation is too complicated for you to understand. You don't have access to the critical facts. You're not a doctor. You're not a scientist. You can't possibly make these decisions for yourself. And because you can't understand any of it, you have to rely on other people. 
And if something that the experts say seems wrong or it feels wrong, you need to simply ignore it. You don't have any business thinking that the experts could be wrong about something. The experts are right about everything. That's why they're experts. That's why we have to trust them. And so that's what they did. And they believed that by trusting the experts, understanding that the experts position could be placed in opposition to Donald Trump, who was always wrong. They were actually turning off their emotions. They were making an only rational decision to trust the experts. And in knowing this, they pulled a reversal and they claimed that if people weren't willing to follow the experts and trust the experts, then those people were making their decision not to react in the way they were encouraged to react by the television based on fear and anger and sadness and hatred. They didn't care about anyone else. They were happy to kill your grandmother as long as it meant they could still have a job. It was not the people whose emotions were being overtly exploited by the media, all for the benefit of the global communist order and the pandemic narrative that would lead in to the stolen election and hopefully the great reset, who were thinking irrationally, who were making their decisions based on fear or anger. No, that was you. It was your weakness, your stupidity, your ignorance, your cluelessness about everything that mattered that convinced you you had the right to say, hey, what these experts are saying doesn't sound true. It doesn't seem true. I certainly can't see it reflected in the world. They're not answering the questions people are asking. They're not showing us the data. They're not showing us the science. They're not giving us the reasons for why we have to do these things. They're just telling us what we must do and how we must listen to them. That was all emotional decision-making and it must be abandoned. But this article is kind of funny, as is the field of social psychology, obviously, because the writer believes that the idea that emotions can influence our decision-making in the short term, they might leave us more open to a reactive decision rather than one that proceeds from understanding, means that the solution is to cut off our ability to think emotionally at all and instead give away all of our thought, all of our authority, put it in the hands of these experts, and then do whatever we're told. It's amazing, isn't it, that that is the solution to everything, except that's not the solution and that's not a proper way of thinking. We can understand that we make emotional decisions at times and we can attempt to self-regulate and understand when our emotions are guiding us. The solution is just to be patient and wait longer and think more and allow our emotional state that guides that thinking to change over time. Maybe it's a couple hours. Maybe it's a couple days. Maybe it's the sort of thing you think about for a few months or a few years. And when you've run through a thought process a number of times with different emotions playing out in the background, you are actually far more likely to reach rational, productive conclusions and make smart decisions. That's what enables us to think critically. And 
The idea that somehow the experts were operating on full information at the beginning and operating in good faith and communicating honestly. Well, that's just absurd. They had full information to the extent that they knew what they were doing based on the plan that they had, the plan they executed, the plan that you can actually read in their own documents, in their studies, in their war game tabletop exercises, like the one from the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security called SPARS Pandemic 2025 to 2028, where they lay out how the narrative operation will work. That document from back in 2017. But the people piping in on Twitter with their expertise, they didn't know anything more. They couldn't even keep pace with normal data analysts who found themselves analyzing a pandemic for the first time. But the information we received from the experts, especially in early 2020, proved to be wrong. Pretty much all of it proved to be wrong. They weren't right about the data. They weren't right about the conclusions they drew from that data. The mitigation steps didn't work. And when they didn't work, they pressed harder for more of the same mitigation steps. And we had to trust the experts. This article is about the idea that people can be manipulated through their emotions into bad decision making. And because of that, they should turn off their thinking altogether and simply do what they're told by experts. But what happens when the experts are involved in the manipulation of people's emotions? People are scared of getting sick and dying. They're scared of having their friends and family get sick and die. But they're not scared of getting sick and dying from the flu. They're not scared of their friends and family dying from the flu. And they never have been, which is why we don't do anything to mitigate the spread of influenza on a normal basis. Some people go and take dangerous experimental shots to prevent the flu. And many of those people end up getting the flu. But we don't have a societal response to flu, even though flu has an infection fatality rate absolutely on par with COVID. So people don't have a natural fear response that would lead them to freaking out over a mostly innocuous respiratory illness. So how did people become so scared? Was it all the coronavirus statistics on the television screen for months on end as the case count rose, as the death count rose, according to their statistics? Was it the 24-7 coverage? Was it the constant narrative about how unprepared we were, how poorly Donald Trump was handling the pandemic, even though he's the one who cut off travel from China? Where did the fear response come from and what was the result? The fear response came from experts saying things about the pandemic that they knew would cause fear and making only one case, the case for further mitigation, the case for lockdown, the case for masking, the case for people going in and putting themselves on a hospital protocol that was likely to kill them. We were told we had to sterilize everything. We were told we had to stay six feet away from everyone else. We couldn't congregate anywhere. We couldn't go about our lives. We couldn't go to work. We couldn't keep our businesses open. 
And it was necessary to do this because it was a very, very deadly pandemic that we should be afraid of. We should be afraid of it, not because of our emotions, but according to the data, because we listened to the experts and the experts told us how scary it was. And because we don't want to rely on our emotions, knowing that we have so little information, we're not doctors, we're not scientists, we're ignorant to all of this. We have to turn our emotions off and rely only on the authority, only on the experts. And then the experts tell us to turn all those emotions back on. In fact, the same emotions that we already had just double them because now the pandemic is attached to Trump. Your emotions didn't make sense before because it was just a common respiratory illness. Now it's time to think rationally. And the only rational response to something like this is fear. The solution isn't to think more carefully. It's to trust the experts. And once we've fully adopted that principle, we know that we are no longer thinking irrationally. We're no longer basing our positions on emotions. We have conquered our humanness. And the solution was right in front of us the whole time. We just simply had to obey. We don't need to think. We need to obey. We don't need to analyze. We need to obey. We don't need to come to our own decisions. We can't do that. Only our emotional brain, only our fear and anger and hatred and sadness could ever lead us to distrust the experts. We just need to obey. Stop thinking and obey. And so we choose to delegate our thinking and to delegate our decision-making, to delegate our moral authority to these experts. And that's a big commitment. We're basically saying to the experts, our lives are in your hands. And to make a decision of that magnitude, well, we want to know that we're right. And so the only way to be sure that we're right is to keep doing it and to put more faith in the experts because they have to know where we're going. These are the people we chose to lead us and we can't do it ourselves. What are we going to do? Think and make our own decisions, even if they conflict with the experts? Of course not. That would be dumb. That would be irrational. That would be a decision based on emotion. Only the sad and the angry and the fearful would distrust the experts. Putting our faith in them isn't dumb, it's rational. In fact, it's the most rational thing you can do. The most rational thing you can do is not think about any of this at all because we're simply not equipped to do it. So the experts created and exploited the emotional response. And in the process, they gained status and power and wealth. And they did this solely based on their status as experts. And it was very effective. People's fears were used to convince them that all of the mitigation steps were true. They were so effective at this that you can still see people acting out these mitigation steps now freely, even though there's no longer any expert recommendation to carry on with any of them. The CDC has removed all of the COVID mitigations. The masks aren't recommended anywhere not even in medical facilities, but people are still doing them out of fear, believing it's rational because they are still attached 
to what they qualified as rational that the experts were saying at the beginning. Masks help. People started masking up again for monkeypox. And monkeypox, we're told, is only transmissible through having sex with gay men. But people trusted the experts on how dangerous the very deadly pandemic was and what we could do to stop it. They have all but declared an end to the pandemic. In fact, Joe Biden has declared an end to the pandemic, but they're not listening to the experts this time because they're still afraid because the experts made them afraid. And the experts told them the only way out of their fear was to stop thinking altogether and listen to us. And everybody somehow still pretends that's kind of smart. And I bring all this up because I've been watching some of the reaction to the hurricane, Hurricane Ian, that has really devastated the West Coast of Florida this week. Tucker Carlson did a segment on it last night. Our betters in the political class and in the media are telling us that Florida has been so devastated because Florida is a red state. And in the red states, they don't respect climate change enough. So the devastation caused by Hurricane Ian is actually their fault. It's the fault of science deniers. It's the fault of MAGA Republicans. They're too dumb. They're too ignorant. They're too uncaring to simply trust the experts when it comes to climate change. We're being told that there are more hurricanes now because of climate change and the hurricanes are more intense. But neither of those things are true. There aren't more hurricanes. The hurricanes aren't more intense. They're not happening more often. And the pace of them happening is not increasing. All of that is just completely false, even though the experts and our betters in the media tell us all of that is true. Just like with COVID, we could have prevented all these problems if we had simply trusted the experts. And because we are the people who don't trust the experts, everything is our fault. And don't be ridiculous. Of course, it doesn't matter that there are plenty of experts who agree with us. Those are the bad experts. And we're only siding with them because we're being led by emotions and not making the rational choice, which is to stop thinking altogether. And you might say that makes no sense. That's pretty dumb, except it makes perfect sense to them. The rational conclusion is always that they are right about everything because they trust the experts. And of course they are because they're the good people and they're the smart people. How do they know they're the smart people, even though all the things they support turn out not to work? Well, they have college degrees and that means they're smarter automatically. Now, one of the reasons that I approach my show the way I do is because I want everyone who listens to this show to understand that these people cannot call you dumb and you have to stop letting them do that. And I know they do that. I know why they do it because I used to do it. I used to think that Republicans were dumb. They just didn't care about making progress. They didn't understand that science had the answers if we would just listen to it. But I eventually realized how ass backwards that is and how dumb I was. I was good at making the dumb argument, but that's meaningless because the dumb argument only makes sense if you have already accepted all the terms and conditions of the false reality. 
It's possible to make very convincing and even winning arguments for positions that are inherently wrong. And I was fairly good at doing that. But over time, I realized how ridiculous all of those arguments actually were at their roots. And when I realized this, I began wondering why I wasn't seeing the smart argument made in any convincing way, in any way that actually defeated the dumb argument and all of the support it gets from our culture. I felt like I had been pretty open-minded, like I was willing to listen to opposing viewpoints. I still had friends that voted for Donald Trump, even in Hollywood. And I would listen to what they said, and I would respect their viewpoints without agreeing with them, without thinking that they were right, without thinking that their argument defeated my argument. But it didn't seem like a better argument was available because eventually all of the arguments in the false reality end up depending on some higher authority. Ultimately, you'll either trust the experts or you won't. And the number of people on the right who were making the smart argument in a way that was actually convincing in the face of the well-made dumb argument was really small. It's actually still really small. There's basically Steve Bannon and a few other people, and that's about it. And because I realized how ridiculous the dumb argument was, I wanted to figure out a way to defeat that dumb argument so that it could actually reach people like me, or at least let's say the 2015 version of me. And that's why I do this. That's why I do this in this way. I mean, take it or leave it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not making this argument in the right way, but I think that I am. And I think that people are going to eventually come around to my position and understand why my approach is what it is. Because the thing you need to realize about arguing against the dumb argument and with these people who make the dumb argument really well is that the only tools short of violence that the communists have are their abilities to make you feel like you're evil and like you're stupid. They make you feel evil because they have absolutely no shame and no actual principles. They'll tell you that something you just said was racist. And they'll also tell you that they don't think you're racist. They'll tell you that everybody is racist, but you are allowing your inherent racism to make the argument for you. You see, it's not rational. You're engaging your emotional mind. That's your racist mind taking over. That's why you don't like open borders. It's just that inherent implicit racism. And you have to get past that. The way to get past that is by turning off all of your emotions completely and just simply listening to the experts. They have no problem calling you racist and sexist, which is actually an accusation of some severe moral and character deficits. They don't have any problem calling you that because they don't even need to mean it. They only need to shut you up to let you know that you have no business even being in the conversation. And they make you feel stupid because our society still thinks that college makes people smart, but it doesn't. These people are completely incompetent, most especially in their relationships and with their values-based decisions. And they don't even seem to realize 
that it's actually more important to be competent in relationships and moral decision making than it is to be able to advise people on what to invest in in the metaverse. But ultimately, these are the only tools of argument they actually possess. If calling you stupid and calling you evil doesn't work and they don't have the ability to threaten your job or your reputation, then there's nothing else they have. That is why they spend so much time trying to convince everyone that everybody knows Republicans are stupid and racist and sexist and anti-science. They cling to their guns. They cling to their religion. They have no ability to decide rationally. They're guided by their emotions of fear and anger and hatred and distrust. They can't understand that the rational choice is to just trust the experts. Just listen to the television. The television is going to tell you what the experts need you to know. And the experts must be trusted because they have access to the authoritative source. And I've said this on the podcast before, but no one made that part of our culture worse than Jon Stewart and The Daily Show. His job for something like 15 years was to find Republicans saying stupid things and blame those stupid things on their identity as Republicans. Because once you've done that successfully, then you can export that identity with all its characteristics. So if you see a Republican, if your friend or your family member is Republican, then what they support is that same stupidity that you just saw on The Daily Show, a stupidity worthy of being mocked because that stupidity is what's preventing everyone from having a better life. Republicans are too stupid to even be allowed an opinion because their opinion always seems to conflict with the experts, which makes it wrong and irrational. And it's funny because Trevor Noah replaced Jon Stewart as the host of The Daily Show and continued along the same path. But that path has now ended and Trevor Noah has been fired. He says he's leaving, but he was fired from his show on Comedy Central because people don't want to watch that anymore. They see what it is now. And if you've ever watched Bill Maher's show real time on HBO, You'll know that he employs the same tactic. In fact, he is even more direct about it. He goes even harder about how dumb Republicans are. I remember a few years back, he used to have a segment where he would have a contest between Republican states for which state was the dumbest. And the examples were always about some poor white trash person doing something ridiculous and the liberal audience would all laugh. And hey, a few years ago, like I said, I was in that audience. I actually have been in that audience multiple times. And in the false reality, all of this makes sense. We have college degrees. Our college degrees teach us how to think, how to process information, who to trust and who not to trust, what kind of thinking we can trust. And we can tell when the person we're talking to has been taught that same process. We're able to communicate easily with those people. So they automatically seem smarter, at least within the false reality. But here's the thing, right? Think about Bill Maher. Bill Maher has Gavin Newsom on real time 
fairly regularly to the point where you'd have to think that they are at least social friends outside of the TV show. And that's how it is in Hollywood. Gavin Newsom is best friends with the Getty family. Surely Bill Maher knows some Gettys. Hell, I know some Gettys. So I imagine that Bill Maher and Gavin Newsom have been social friends, social acquaintances for probably a pretty long time. But hey, Bill, the governor you're best pals with let 8,000 felons out of prison and said it was because of COVID. This is back in 2020. They rioted and they voted for Democrats. And all the Democrats, the Democrat communists in California, thought this was smart and kind and necessary because they were so worried that the inmates, as bad as their lives already are, because surely they were put behind bars for bad reasons. It was the legal system that was against them. The legal system was too racist because, of course, all criminals are black. And all of this made sense to them. In fact, they cheered it on. They thought they were being the charitable people, the kind people, the people that cared about other people. But that is so much dumber than wrestling an alligator. The Democrats all took the vaccine. They lined up for it. They lined up to get their children injected with an experimental gene therapy, an experimental medical treatment for a disease they knew virtually nothing true about that couldn't actually kill them. And now they're watching people die from the vaccine that they know doesn't work. And they're arguing that it was still good and necessary to get it. Nonetheless, they thought people should be forced to do it or have their lives destroyed. And they would do it again if the situation presented itself. There was a video going around yesterday from a Canadian actress who got the shot and within a couple weeks developed Bell's palsy, half her face is basically paralyzed. And she's putting out this video about her vaccine injury and wiping tears from her face as she speaks. And then at the end, she said she would do it again. And she didn't regret her decision because we all had to do it. There are still experts saying that the vaccine is safe and effective and that it will protect you. And there are still people listening to them and saying that that is the rational decision. It's not dumb not to think about this for yourself. It's actually what smart people do. Well, that is way dumber than actually shooting yourself in the foot which is the sort of thing Bill Maher would use to call the entire state of Alabama stupid. And that would make sense to him, even though California has a terrible educational system that got that way because of the policies of people like Bill Maher and his guests. All of that is as dumb as it can get. And it's also evil. They said it was important to mask up and even wear two masks, even after they knew that masks don't work, even after the experts told them and the experts have been talking about how masks don't work for a long time. The experts have admitted that none of the things worked. Lockdowns didn't work. The remdesivir didn't work. The masks don't work. The vaccines don't work. The tests don't work. 
And the experts have said all of this. But that doesn't matter to the very, very smart people. They forced children to wear masks while knowing that it would harm their development and make them sick. And they continue doing it just so that they could avoid admitting that the bad people were right the whole time. That is way, way, way dumber than having to shop at Walmart so you can afford to raise eight kids. And that, too, is the sort of thing that Bill Maher would regularly make fun of. Oh, those dumb Walmart shoppers. Why are they having so many children when they can't even afford the food at Walmart? As if buying more expensive food and clothing is more fulfilling and more important in life than having a family. That's not only extremely dumb in a way that can have a profound effect on one's value for their own life. It's also an example of an astounding weakness of character, but they don't care at all because they trust the experts and the experts have told them that the earth is overpopulated. The experts convinced them of all the different narratives that have come together to lead these people to the conclusion that having children, getting married and having children is a bad idea. And they think that's based on science. They think it's an objectively bad idea because they don't think they realize they weren't capable of thinking all their thoughts included their emotions. They couldn't make decisions without their emotions. So they simply stopped thinking and they turned it over to the authorities. And all of this is an argument against intuition. It is an argument against humanness. There is nothing about you as a human that could ever lead you to making the proper decisions without their help. All of those human instincts, all of your intuition, all of that is wrong. So you turn all of that off. You become in full a scientific materialist because that's the only way you can know you're right. The judgment of whether or not you're right is whether or not the experts agree with you. If they don't, you're wrong. If you find that happening over and over and over again, then it's a product of your emotions. But our intuition literally exists to protect us and to guide our thinking. It's what helps us draw meaning out of the information we receive. And once we draw out that meaning, that is when we can make rational decisions. That's when we can do moral decision-making. You cannot make moral decisions without thinking about morality. You can't think about morality without being able to extract meaning from information. You're supposed to think the way a computer thinks. And in that context, the phrase artificial intelligence takes on a whole new meaning. There was a truly astounding article from The Atlantic this week by a communist named Phillips Payson O'Brien. And the original headline of this article, you can still see it in the URL. And this is how it was listed on Real Clear Politics. Why woke armies beat hypermasculine ones. That was the headline. Why woke armies beat hypermasculine ones. The headline was changed to what Ted Cruz and Tucker Carlson don't understand about war. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin and his generals aren't the only people who think that the more ruthless, hypermasculine and reflexively brutal an army is, the better it performs on the battlefield. That view also has fans in the United States. Last year, Senator Ted Cruz recirculated a TikTok video that contrasted a Russian military recruitment ad, which showed a male soldier getting ready to kill people with an American recruitment video that told the story of a female soldier, the daughter of two mothers who enlisted partly to challenge stereotypes. I mean, already everyone should be rolling their eyes. Perhaps a woke emasculated military is not the best idea. Cruz tweeted sarcastically. The Texas Republican is not alone in trumpeting a Putin-esque ideal. Several months earlier, the Fox News host Tucker Carlson had similarly complained about a supposedly woke Pentagon, which he likened to the Wesleyan University Anthropology Department. By promoting diversity and inclusion, he insisted, military leaders were destroying American armed forces, supposedly the last great bastion of merit in the country. More recently, Carlson has complained that America's armed forces are becoming more feminine, whatever feminine means anymore, just as China's are becoming more masculine. Arguments like these were much easier to make before Putin unleashed his muscle bound and decidedly unwoke fighting machine on the ostensibly weak Ukrainians only to see it perform catastrophically. Now, this person exists fully in the false reality. This is completely detached from the observable empirical reality that exists. You would think it would be impossible for anyone to be this clueless, but we're talking about someone who is fully embraced the idea that the experts and the elites must be right. More than seven months into the war, the Ukrainian army continues to grow in strength, confidence, and operational competence, while the Russian army is flailing. Its recent failures raise many questions about the nature of military power. Before Putin ordered his troops into Ukraine, many analysts described his military as fast and powerful and predicted that it would shock and awe the overmatched defenders. The Ukrainian armed forces were widely assumed to be incapable of fighting the mighty Russians out in the open. Their only option, the story went, would be to retreat into their cities and wage a form of guerrilla warfare against the invaders. The success of the Ukrainian military over the past few months, along with the evolution of the Ukrainian state itself toward a more tolerant liberal norm, reveals what makes a better army in the modern world. Brains mean more than brawn, and adaptability means more than mindless aggression. Openness to new ideas and new equipment, along with the ability to learn quickly, is far more important than a simple desire to kill. And of course, this is a complete inversion of reality. The Ukrainian army is the one with the Azov Battalion and other neo-Nazi and Nazi factions in their actual military. The Ukrainian army is the one with all the foreign mercenaries using foreign weapons and foreign intelligence, a foreign battle plan, all of it funded by foreign money, all of it to serve the global communist agenda with no respect for the lives of any innocent Ukrainians. That same army is the one that's been committing atrocities and waging an ethnic civil war in Ukraine since 2014. The Russian army is there to stop that. 
And those regions have now become part of Russia. Not only was Russia winning, Russia has accomplished all of their goals. On some level, Russia has already won. But the West, the EU, NATO, the United States, the UK, the global communists, they're going to continue fighting there. In fact, they're going to escalate with no mind paid to the further extermination of innocent life. But Russia are the stupid ones. Russia are the brutal ones. The Ukrainian army has been crushed and continues to be crushed. And they have backed into the cities. They are fighting a guerrilla war against the invaders. And they're stationing themselves among civilian populations in hospitals, in schools. That's them doing that. From the moment the Russian military crossed the border, the Ukrainians have outfought it, revealing it to be inflexible and intellectually vapid. Indeed, when confronted with a Ukrainian military, that was everything it was not smart, adaptable, and willing to learn. The Russian army could only fall back on slow, massed firepower. The Battle of the Donbass, the war's longest engagement, which started in late April and is still underway, exposed the Russian army at its worst. For months, it directed the bulk of personnel and equipment toward the center of a battle line running approximately from Izum to Donetsk. Instead of breaking through Ukrainian lines and sending armored forces streaking forward rapidly, as many analysts had predicted, the Russian army opted to make painfully slow incremental advances by simply blasting the area directly in front of it. And you got to understand that the Russian army was making mistakes. They weren't listening to the Western experts who told everybody what the Russian army was going to do. Maybe the Russian army would have been more successful if they had listened to the experts. And because they didn't listen to the experts, they automatically made the wrong decisions. And it's because they're just not smart. Their strategy was intellectually vapid. The plan seemed to be to render the area uninhabitable by Ukrainians, which would allow the Russians to advance intermittently into the vacuum. This was heavy firepower, low intelligence warfare on a grand scale, which resulted in strategically meaningless advances secured at the cost of unsustainably high Russian casualties. And in recent weeks, the Ukrainians have retaken much of the territory that Russia managed to seize at the start of the battle and more. Well, that sentence makes absolutely no sense. They recaptured one to two percent of the area that Russia had occupied, and they only did so after Russia left. It makes no sense to say that the Ukrainians managed to seize back that territory and more. What does and more mean? They didn't seize Russian territory. They didn't retake Crimea, and they didn't even retake the Donbass. They not only lost the Donbass, they lost Kherson and Zaporozhye as well. And the citizens of all those regions have voted themselves Russian and Vladimir Putin has accepted. That's just all Russia now. It doesn't matter at all that the United Nations and the EU and NATO and the fake president in the United States refuse to recognize it. That doesn't matter at all. I struggle to think 
of another case in the past hundred years when a major military power has performed as poorly against an adversary, it was heavily favored to defeat. And I guess he must just forget about Vietnam or Afghanistan. But even the comparison is pointless because the premise is absurd. The supposedly second strongest army in the world with its martial spirit, brilliant doctrines and advanced equipment was thwarted and is now being pushed back by a Ukrainian military whose prospects most outsiders had dismissed before the war. And again, this was written on Wednesday, September 28th, 2022. Two days ago, this is all being published. The persistence of the Putin Cruz Carlson vision of war is surprising because we have decades, even centuries of evidence to the contrary. Since the Industrial Revolution and in many ways before, the ability to run a complex system has been the cornerstone of strategic success. Though much military popular literature likes to stress the human drama of combat, the bravery and sacrifice, the cowardice and atrocity. It is not nearly as important in victory or defeat as many people assume. In state-to-state -state wars, a category that includes the current Russian invasion of Ukraine, as well as border conflicts such as the two world wars, the side that can most efficiently deploy more effective equipment operated by better trained personnel has typically emerged victorious. The combination of education and technology overcame brute force during World War II, when the most militarily skillful and adaptable countries, the United States and the United Kingdom, were able to fight their enemies at a relatively small cost in casualties. The UK, even though it fought around the world from 1939 to 1945, lost only 384,000 soldiers in combat. The U.S. lost even fewer, suffering approximately 290,000 battle deaths. The German armed forces, by contrast, lost more than 4 million soldiers. That the British and American armed forces kept their casualties comparatively low is especially notable because they were confronted with an overwhelming majority of German arms, planes, and ammunition. Because of the sickening number of human casualties, the fighting on the Eastern Front between the Nazis and Soviets is widely deemed World War II's largest engagement. But Germany had to send far more of its war production to fight the British and Americans than it did to fight the USSR. And we are supposed to take from that that it is because the US and the UK were just too smart and the Russians were too stupid. So the German army was able to lose to the Russians with fewer people than they were able to lose to the U.S. and the U.K. with, I suppose. The Ukrainians are trying, albeit with far fewer advantages, to do to Russia what the U.S. and the U.K. did to Germany. Ukrainian forces have learned to skillfully use advanced weaponry. In this case, NATO standard systems such as HIMARS and HARM missiles to neutralize the brutal strength of the Russian army. They have accomplished this because Ukrainian society is more flexible, technologically conversant and willing to learn than the Russian invaders are. They have shown more cleverness and wisdom. And over time, that advantage has allowed them to start taking the initiative. Now, everything he just described there is support from other nations, other nations, armaments and funding and soldiers and intelligence. And he's saying that all of this 
has been made possible because the comedic actor in Ukraine is so liberal about drugs and transgenders, apparently, since he is a big fan of cocaine and cross-dressing. Cocaine and cross-dressing are, in fact, two of the things that make you an expert military leader. Just as the ability to absorb information is better than lunkhead hyper-masculinity in a modern army, diversity and social integration also bring major advantages. As Ukraine has become more diverse and tolerant, its army has benefited. In contrast with Putin's homophobic military, the Ukrainian army forces include LGBTQ soldiers who have incorporated unicorn insignia into their uniforms. The valor of these soldiers and the rallying of the Ukrainian people around a vision of a tolerant and diverse society have led to an overall increase in Ukrainian support for gay rights. And it underscores the belief that everyone has a role to play in the country's defense. So it's not only the gay soldiers that are winning the war for Ukraine. It's the approval of gayness by the Ukrainian regime that is helping them win the war that they have already lost. The Russian experience could not be more different. Putin has made suppressing gay rights one of the hallmarks of his rule. Determined to capitalize on culture war tropes of the American right, he has portrayed Russia as a victim of cancel culture. And who knows what that even means, as if Putin is getting his cues from the Daily Wire when they talk about owning the libs, as if Putin invaded Ukraine because he wanted a Ben Shapiro mug of liberal tears. Last week, Putin called for a partial mobilization, which appears to be much broader than was originally announced. Now faced with the prospect of being forced into his army, large numbers of Russian men are desperately trying to get out of the country and protests and even sabotage have occurred against government authorities. Whether Russian citizens generally view service in Putin's army as a worthy national endeavor is in doubt. The Ukrainians, conversely, undertook a far more successful conscription at the start of the invasion. And of course, that is factually untrue as well. Ukraine's Nazi battalions were killing people who refused to join their army. Recent events should banish the idea that the more aggressive killing machine wins the war. Intelligence, technological savvy, and social integration are the assets that matter most on the modern battlefield. Perhaps Ukraine would be doing even better if their army was only Twitter employees. But of course, this is utter insanity. Vladimir Putin signed a treaty and held a ceremony with the leaders of the four regions who have now become part of Russia. He has formally recognized them as part of Russia, and he has said that he will defend that part of Russia forever. That will be part of Russia forever. That is what he has said. He gave a speech today in the Red Square, attended by literally tens of thousands of people. I don't know what the final estimate is going to be, but just city blocks, huge boulevards packed with people all there to cheer on Russia's military victory 
while the rest of the world pretends that Ukraine has some chance at winning. Meanwhile, the comedic actor was making idle threats on Zoom calls while applying for expedited membership in NATO. And he got turned down for that expedited membership in NATO because NATO needs the approval, the unanimous approval of all 30 NATO member nations. And they can't get that approval. They have no chance at getting that approval. And everyone knows it. But they want it anyway so that Ukraine can be considered part of NATO and so that NATO can be forced into a war with Russia. These people are actively trying to create a World War III, and they are threatening to go nuclear. Now, if Ukraine was actually winning, why on the day that a big chunk of their country became Russian and Russia is taking evidence of sabotage by the West to the UN Security Council, is the comedic actor begging to become part of NATO. He has said there will be no peace negotiation until Putin is no longer the leader of Russia. But if he's winning, if Russia is being defeated on the battlefield so severely, why isn't he willing to negotiate with Putin so that Putin can tell him the terms of his surrender? And of course, that's because the entire narrative is a lie. Here are some excerpts of Putin's speech today. George News put this together. During his 37-minute long speech, Putin spoke about the breakup of the Soviet Union, Western colonial policy, nuclear weapons, and his view of Western morals. The quotes have been translated into English from Russian. We will defend our land with all the powers and means at our disposal. In 1991, at Belovej Forest, without asking the will of common citizens, representatives of the then party elites decided to destroy the USSR, and people suddenly found themselves cut off from their motherland. This tore apart and dismembered our nation, becoming a national catastrophe. I admit they did not fully understand what they were doing and what consequences this would inevitably lead to in the end. But this is no longer important. There is no Soviet Union. The past cannot be brought back. And Russia today does not need it anymore. We are not striving for this. The battlefield to which fate and history have called us is the battlefield for our people, for great historical Russia, for future generations, our children, grandchildren and great grandchildren. And apparently Vladimir Putin is not listening to the experts in the Atlantic who have said for months and months that all he's trying to do is put the Soviet Union back together. Everybody knows that's what Vladimir Putin is striving for, except apparently Vladimir Putin. He went on. I want the Kiev authorities and their real masters in the West to hear me. So they remember this. People living in Luhansk and Donetsk, Kherson and Zaporozhye are becoming our citizens forever. We call on the Kiev regime to immediately end hostilities, end the war that they unleashed back in 2014 and return to the negotiating table. We are ready for this, but we will not discuss the choice of the people in Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporozhye and Kherson. That has been made. Russia will not betray them. About the Nord Stream pipeline, he said. 
Sanctions were not enough for the Anglo-Saxons. They moved on to sabotage. It is hard to believe, but it is a fact that they organized the blasts on the Nord Stream international gas pipelines, which run along the bottom of the Baltic Sea. It is clear to everyone who benefits from this. On Western imperialism, he said, the West began its policy back in the Middle Ages and then followed the slave trade, the genocide of Indian indigenous tribes in America, the plunder of India, of Africa, the wars of England and France against China. What they did was hook entire nations on drugs, deliberately exterminating entire ethnic groups. For the sake of land and resources, they hunted people like animals. This is contrary to the very nature of man, truth, freedom, and justice. He discussed the nuclear threat. The United States is the only country in the world that has twice used nuclear weapons, destroying the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and setting a precedent. Even today, they actually occupy Germany, Japan, the Republic of Korea, and other countries, and at the same time cynically call them allies of equal standing. On Western morality, he said, now they have moved on entirely to a radical denial of moral norms, religion, and family. The dictatorship of the Western elites is directed against all societies, including the people of the Western countries themselves. This is a challenge to all. This is a complete denial of humanity, the overthrow of faith and traditional values. Indeed, the suppression of freedom itself has taken on the features of a religion, outright Satanism. Do we really want here in our country, in Russia, instead of mom and dad, to have parent number one, parent number two, number three? Have they gone completely insane? Do we really want it drilled into children in our schools that there are supposedly genders besides women and men and children to be offered the chance to undergo sex change operations? We have a different future, our own future. Now, you can call all of that dumb if you like. But if you're going to do that, it seems like you should be able to argue where exactly he's wrong because he's not wrong about the history. He's not wrong about what's happening in the West. He's not wrong about what his people want. They were out there in the tens of thousands in celebration of what he has done for Russia. And you contrast that with the weak and demented fake president of the United States who went out and said, I'm prepared to defend every inch of NATO territory. So my message to Vladimir Putin is don't even think about it. Where are the people rallying behind Joe Biden's leadership? All we have is some vague promise that Joe Biden has actually united the allies in a common cause, and soon this Russian threat will be eliminated. But no one believes this. No one could possibly believe this unless their only standard for belief is whether or not the television says it's true. Is this rational? Of course not. It's fear-based. And what is their fear? They're afraid of everyone realizing that they're frauds, that they don't know anything that they're the dumb ones, they're the immoral ones, they're the ones who haven't considered any of these things. They are complete and total frauds, which is why they won't even defend their position. 
and they can't defend their position because they didn't think their way into it in the first place. They knew that thinking was too difficult for them, and they were likely to run into some emotions during that thought process. So they did the only rational thing. They trusted the experts. And just look where it's gotten them. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. 
On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!